The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Good morning, good morning, and welcome. Today I'm broadcasting from Phoenix, Arizona. I'm a little mixed up in the time zones. Uh, my guest today is Lindsay Lanehart Craig. She is a trial consultant and a mitigation specialist based in Lubbock, Texas. Hi, Lindsay. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me. So, we, oh, absolutely. And I'm really excited about talking to you about what you do and about your background. Uh, so. Folks, if you're listening, um, we're both on cell phones this morning, so we're hoping we don't have a little transmission problems. But um, so, Lindsay, I know a little bit about your background. I know you have a bachelor's of science in radio, television, and film, but then you yes. went to work for attorneys. So, how did that? How do you make that transition? Oh gosh! Well, I was raised in a law family. My dad is a criminal defense attorney. My mom is now a retired judge. Uh, My granddad was an attorney. My uncle is an attorney. And I tried to run as far away from the law as I could. So I thought radio, (laughs) television, film was the best way to do that. Um, And the reason I worked for attorneys was because that's what I knew. That's how I grew up. So, um, and then I came came back to Lubbock after uh, college, and uh, my husband and I decided to open up a wine shop. You know, because that's far away from the law, right? <laughs> and that and that is the radio and television. For sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And little did I know that radio, TV, film background would actually help me with what I'm doing now. But um, that was not the plan. I really wanted to be a record producer for a while. That didn't work out. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> anyway, so we, we wanted to open up a wine shop. But so while in doing that, um, I went to work for my dad as a, as a paralegal. And I, you know, just thought, you know, I'm not going to do this. This is just a job to to get me through. And then I decided to go back to school uh, to become a counselor. Um, So I got my master's in uh, counseling from Texas Tech Mm. here in Lubbock. And uh, while I'm going to school, uh, working full-time for my dad as a paralegal, I also decided to have a child during that time. (laughs) And then I was contacted by another attorney who said, can you do a mock trial for this big 
mini cap murder case uh, here in Lubbock. And I went, no, I do not have time, but I did it. And I fell in love with the process. Um, so, okay. Um, yeah, so that's kind of how it all got started. And then after I got my degree, I had to choose. I had to, you know, either go on to get my license as a professional counselor or uh, start up my own business as a trial consultant. And an opportunity presented itself to open up my own business. And I ran with it. And here I am. And it's called Create Trial Consultant. Correct. That's yeah. That's correct. And and you know, in the beginning, when I opened up my practice, I thought I would be doing more trial consulting work, as in uh, you know, helping attorneys pick juries or running mock trials or focus groups. But I had um, another local attorney come in and talk to me about doing uh, mitigation work, which I had done a lot for my dad in the past. I knew how to do it, and I went, "Oh, that's a good idea. Maybe I could do that." And so. Really, 95% of my work is mitigation. So tell, tell us what mitigation is, Lindsay. So mitigation, mitigation yeah. So, so it means to lessen or to make lesser. And typically I'm involved in criminal cases. And so what I'm trying to do is help find reasons why someone deserves a lesser punishment. So really, okay. it's for punishment purposes. I don't, I don't deal much with uh, the facts of the case, even though, of course, that's an important part of cases. And mitigation doesn't have to just be for criminal work. Um, I've worked mm. on some civil cases um, and even family law. I did a mitigation workup for a family law case. Um, and, you know, you can, do, you can do mitigation for several things. I just have for criminal. Yeah, how does mitigation apply to family law? Well, what I did was I just, I I did a background, you know, a history on my client and um, just, it was just to show what a good mom she was and why she deserved her child. And we, we went to trial and we won. She got her child back. Was it a custody? Okay. It was was a custody custody case. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And was it uh, had to do with child protective services? No, it didn't. It was just a um, the I guess in the um, preliminary proceedings, the judge awarded custody to the dad. I and see. And we wanted the child okay. back. It was horrible. I, okay. I oh, family law is just heartbreaking to me, <laughs> especially since I have a <laughs> four-year-old son. Yeah, really, it's true. It is heartbreaking. And yeah. so, Lindsay, I see that you, when you were getting your intern, or when you were doing your master's, your internship was working with criminal offenders. Um, right. How did that impact what you do now? Oh, I learned a lot. Um, yeah, I worked at a, it was a transitional treatment facility. So it was substance abuse offenders who had been sent to, you know, ISF or, or safe. P, they call it safe P. It's like a prison for substance abuse offenders. They get out and they go to, they come to our facility. And, you know, lots of them have these substance abuse issues to deal with as well as criminal offenses. So it's that, you know, um, dual uh, process. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I just see a lot of that in, you know, the people that I 
that I help represent now and and you know you you kind of see those the same stories pop up and um right i mean it's it's all the same thing but with counseling you know it's more like um trying to help them overcome what they're going through but with mitigation you know you're really trying to help them with their cases, like the what's going on right now, and and trying to find them um, opportunities besides prison, <laughs> you know, right, get them right, help right. instead of just throwing them away. So, um, so back to to uh, mitigation. Um, when a criminal trial attorney is defending somebody, say on a capital murder. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think probably many people don't know that he is required, he or she is required to pursue any area of mitigation or possible mitigation. Um, yeah, ab- absolutely. <laughs> criminal, de- criminal defense attorneys get a bad rap uh, because, they, because they do this, you know, because they, they go after uh, sympathetic areas uh, regarding the defendant, say, you know, all kinds of things. It could be brain damage. It could be child abuse as a, when they were children. It could be all kinds of things. And criminal defense attorneys get so criticized for doing this, but they're required to do it. Well, and it's necessary. I mean, crime doesn't just happen for no reason. There, and people have stories to tell. It's not just this crime happened and this should be their punishment. You have to know about a person. You can't just say, well, this person was born, he or she committed this crime, and that's it. I mean, it, you know, that, mm-hmm. I don't think it's so much sympathy. You know, we're not trying to give excuses for why someone, you know, might have done something. We're, we're trying to make them understand why they did what they did. Mm-hmm. You know, and it could okay. be because they have these issues in their background, like substance abuse, for example, or abusive parents, or they've been in foster care, or it could be positive mitigation, like they were a good good student, and they were a really hard worker, and made a really bad mistake, you know? There's several things. And of course, in a capital case... Uh, in the penalty phase, the jury is charged with deciding whether this person should get, get death or execution or life in prison without parole. Right. So the jury has a huge responsibility, and, it, and in, a, in a capital trial, in a penalty phase of a capital trial, uh, it's the attorney's responsibility to put on all, he has the burden of proof of all the mitigation evidence. So it's a tough, it's tough, really tough. Yeah, and I, and I don't think that mitigation just comes in in the punishment phase. I think you really have to start weaving those themes through, even in Vordire. I mean, start from the beginning, you know, because you can't just talk about the facts of the case and then someone gets convicted and then you move on to the punishment phase and go, well, wait a minute, this guy is a really good guy, you know, or he has all these all right. issues. You have to somehow weave it through. So, so, Lindsay, what do you do as a mitigation specialist? Tell us what your process is, where do you start, and how do you develop it? Sure. Well, I mean, all, you know, all cases are different, of course. 
everybody's got a different story, but what I like to do is, you know, I'll talk to the attorney first, and I do read the discovery, the police report. Um, people have differing opinions on that. I try not to let it um, influence my thoughts about the person uh, before I meet them, but I, I do read it because I like to, you know, talk about the day of the incident with them, so I kind of want to know what's going on. But um, mm-hmm. then I'll talk to the client, and my initial interviews with clients can take anywhere from two to three hours up to, I think the longest I've had was 11 hours, you know, but it took a lot of different meetings. And and you really have to uh, build that rapport with your clients because if you don't, they're not going to be honest with you, you know? I mean... It, sometimes, you know, pe- sometimes people are difficult to get to, some, so sometimes you just have to sit down and, and talk to them for a bit before you can really get to the meat of it. But I I go through, um, you know, from birth up until that present time, so we talk about their family life, we talk about their childhood, their friends, their neighborhood that they grew up in, uh, I like to go through their education, um, see what kind of grades they made and if they ever got in trouble in school, um, their employment history. Uh, we talk about mental health issues, substance abuse issues, and not just them, but their family as well and what they were surrounded by. Mm-hmm. I had one client who uh, talked to me about his dad taught him to smoke pot at the age of nine, you know? Wow. Yeah. Um, and, and there's, you know, there's lots of, lots of things that, that I like to talk about with my clients. And then from there, I use, I, I create what I call a history of person. Um, and then I use that kind of as a map to guide me through uh, what witnesses I want to speak with, family members, friends, character references, um, anybody that I think would be uh, important to talk to about relationships and, and, you know, that can kind of substantiate my client's story about their life. And then, um, and then I pull records, of course, <laughs> any, right. any, um, any records I can find about the person, their school records, sometimes birth records are important, you know, if they have any, um, if there was any like fetal alcohol syndrome or, you know, mom was on drugs when she was pregnant or if they turned blue as a baby, I don't know. Um, Mm uh, and then, you know, any medical mental health records that I can find, um, veterans, uh, you know, if they were in the military, those records are important. There's, there's a, just a ton of, ton of record collection that goes on with mitigation. Uh And and then, yeah, then I present, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to ask, how do you get clients to trust you? Do you have any particular ways you go about getting them to trust you because, you know, typically they don't. I mean, it's a process. Um, yeah, well, so what yeah, do you do? and I, when I first walk in, you know, I tell them, and I'm honest with them, I tell them, look, look, this is, I'm here to help you. I'm not here to hurt you. And the only, my information is going to your lawyer. That's it. And that is and and he's going to use my information to help you, not to hurt you. Um, that's kind of my, my spiel at the first. And I tell him about what mitigation is 
because nobody uh-huh. knows what it is. They call me a mediator most of the time. Right. Um, <laughs> which I, I've done that right. too. So, <laughs> but um, yeah, you know, and and like I said, some people are harder to crack than others, and sometimes it just takes a lot of talking to them and meeting with them before you can really get anything out of them. And 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 some people are just an open book, and they want to talk to you for hours and hours and hours and tell you stories and stories. And I let them talk. I mean, mm-hmm. I type. I type really fast. <laughs> oh, so, I don't use I don't so, use a recorder. Okay, so I might need to. when you're meeting with them, you're actually typing what they're telling you at the same time. I am, and um, wow, you know, there's I know um, I've thought about uh, using a recorder because I feel like it would be easier just to. Um, have like a natural flow to the conversation, mm-hmm. but I found that I found that um, typing I don't miss anything, <laughs> you know. And and with a recorder, I'm afraid that technology is going to fail me sometimes. But you know, I've only been doing this for a year and a half, so mm-hmm. I, I I haven't nothing set in stone. What do you, what and do you do? You don't, and- yeah, I take notes. You um, take notes, like record, handwritten? Yeah, handwritten notes, mm-hmm. right. Um, so, and obviously that isn't verbatim. Like, are you, you're doing verbatim comments? Or how are you, you, are know, you trying I, to yeah, summarize I, at the same time? Or you, no, I don't really summarize. I type, them, I type it word for word, but it's just like... Um, not complete sentences or anything. People don't speak in complete sentences anyway, but, um, yeah, right. it's just... And then I try to um, edit and make sure that I've got, you know, if I miss something or if I have a little asterisk to expand upon, then I'll do that. And I try to edit as soon as we're done so that I don't forget anything. And, and so that's really interesting to me, Lindsay. You don't find that... Is, is that not distracting um, when you're when you're talking to them and trying to pay attention to, you know, what they're saying and what, what their body language is and all that, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you don't find it distracting yeah, Well, you know, I've just been doing it for, for a while now, oh, so <laughs> not that long. But, I mean, it, it seems to have worked so far, but, but I might go to yeah. recording as well and maybe, you know, try to see how that works. Uh, of course, recording requires you to transcribe it, which is another another process. So um, I don't want to do that. <laughs> I, yeah, exactly. I I'm right with you there. Okay, yeah. so um, back to the trust issue. When you get into obstacles, how do you handle those? Like I'm thinking of obstacles. Like if you're trying to get into um, areas of sexual abuse, say for example, people mm-hmm. are often, most of the time, do not want to even discuss it. So how do you overcome those obstacles? Sure. Well, I mean, I try to give them time, you know, and, and say we can come back to it later or, you know, after you've gotten, um, after you've gained their trust a little bit, maybe, you know, come back to that topic later. Um, I, I tell them, you know, if, if this isn't something you want to discuss right now, that's okay. I don't, I don't want to uh-huh. put pressure on them. Um, uh-huh. You know, because then they're going to shut down. So, and, and, and 
you know, I come, I come at the, since I do have a counseling background, um, uh-huh. I, I don't know. I, I feel like, for the most part, most of my clients have trusted me and opened up to me. Of course, they're not going to share every everything with me right up front. So it just takes time. You know, you just really yeah, have to yeah. to to gain their trust. I, I don't know. I mean, just make sure that they realize that you're on their team. You know, and and nothing that they say can hurt them. I think that's important for them to know. Yeah, and another big obstacle seems to be when the the mother is the culprit, for example, or maybe the mother is the abuser, or maybe the mother is the one that was uh, an alcoholic when she was, uh, when the Mm -hmm. child was in utero. Um, How do you get them to talk about that mother that they're protecting so well? Well, some of them don't protect their mothers. Right. (laughs) Some of them do it. Some of them blame them. Yeah. But but on the other hand, some of them do protect their mothers to their detriment. Right. Right. Yeah, I mean... It's it's hard to you know it's it's got to be kind of in that moment it I just I just kind of follow along you know and track with them you know how they how they speak I mean you can tell when someone's hesitant to talk to uh-huh. you sometimes you can tell when something is there and maybe you've pushed a button um, so you know I just. Tell them, look, I know this is difficult for you. I understand. Um, but ultimately, we need to know this information, um, and we can talk about it when you want to talk about it. But mm-hmm. I, I just, you know, I just try to feel them out. So it sounds as like best you as do I a can. lot. By, yeah, you, you're, it sounds like you're doing a lot by instinct. I guess so. I've never yeah. really thought about it, but yeah, I mean, yeah, it, it, since everybody is different, everybody handles things differently, and um, uh-huh. yeah, I just, yeah, I just try to fill it out, for, you know, at the time being. So, did you and have, I, mean, I have did a lot have of people a... cry. <laughs> you, you were? I said there's, and, and a lot of people do break down, and it's, it's tough to see a, you know, 300-pound mm-hmm. man boo-hooing in front of you. And, and mm-hmm. sometimes people, they've never talked about these issues before. They've always they've right. bottled them up inside. And when you start talking to them, they start letting them out. I mean, I think it's very cathartic for a lot of people. Oh, for sure. And I think that's, yeah, I think that's sure. a good thing. Um, yeah. And I, I, I'm a true believer in, in people needing to talk to yeah, someone. Yeah, for sure. And if I can so be can that give, person, that's great. Can you give an example of one that's been particularly powerful for you? Well, let me, uh, let me think. Let's see. Oh, gosh. Um, well, we can, we can come back to that. We can come back to that, Lizzie. Uh, I know that uh, um, just switching gears a little bit because we can come back to a capsule case. But you gave a case uh, in the article I read that you wrote about a pre-indictment 
uh, situation uh, by somebody that by the name of Paul. Right. Under investigation by CPS. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, um, that you know that one actually um, it's since been dismissed. This whole case was dismissed, um, and uh, Paul was actually a friend of mine. I I, have, I had known him uh, since we were kids, and um, and it was just it was just one of those I can't believe he's even indicted on this because I felt like he was justified in his actions. But, but what happened was uh, he was going through um, a divorce because his wife had cheated on him. And um, the wife had a few kids uh, prior to their marriage. And then when they got married, he adopted um, one of her kids, and then they had a child together. Um, and so, you know, things were moving along and then he finds out she's cheating on him and then he finds out that the guy that she was cheating on him with died in their house from an overdose on meth. Wow. <laughs> and so, obviously, this guy was pissed. You know, his kids were there when this guy died at his uh, home. Uh-huh. And so they're wow. going through the whole divorce proceedings and, and whatnot, and um, he went over to the house to pick up his kids, and the wife was not there at the time, but the I believe it was the wife's mom and uh, the wife's brother were there at the house with the kids. And so he went to pick up his kids, and they tried to stop him from taking his kids, and so... You know, his his story was he just kind of pushed his way through and uh, and then took his kids. I believe he got his kids. Um, and then they filed assault charges on him. So, um, you know, and, and we, the lawyer took this information to the, the DA and, and uh, pre-indictment. And they just, they, I guess they just no, no build the case. They didn't even file it. So. So how soon after the guy died, did Paul go to pick up the kids? Uh, you know, I think it was, yeah, I have a timeline. It's hard to remember, but, um, it was a little while after because I don't think he even learned of the death until a while after because they were trying to hide it from him. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. so yeah, so it was it was a little while later. I think it was when he heard about it. I think he went to the police station or something and pulled the report and then went, "I am going to take my kids." You know, this this is not going to happen. He was he was pissed. Yeah, rightfully so. Right. So he and this woman had a child together, and then he had adopted the youngest one. Of her children, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and he was, and he was a daddy, stepdaddy to the to the other one, to the older. He had a really okay. good relationship with all of the kids. Yeah, and did he end up getting custody of the all three? What happened with I that? I don't know. About that? The, I don't know about the custody. I don't know about the family law 
case. I don't I don't know what happened with that. Hmm. Okay. I need to okay. ask him. And so, do you think that the uh, mitigation work that you did helped in getting the case dismissed? Of course. Yeah. I mean, you know, I don't. You know, I don't think that. I think it was kind of uh, light on the mitigation because there there wasn't. Um, I didn't have to pull records or really talk to anybody, but I did a, a history of person, like a background report on on him. Um, which I knew a lot about him anyway, and, you know, he came from a good family, and um, he just, he had a lot going for him, uh, so that that stuff was presented for sure, and then the, the fact about the guy dying right. and <clears throat> all of that, so. Yeah, that, yeah. Well, you had another case that you talked about uh, regarding a guy of a presumed name of Alfred, and was yes. charged with aggravated sexual assault. That was mm-hmm. a really interesting case because this is uh, this is the kind of thing where people think, you know, when you hear on the news that somebody has committed sexual assault, the general public thinks, oh, they're they're guilty. And oh, here's no. a case where it's absolutely not true. And you and I both run across uh, a lot of cases where somebody's accused accused of a sexual assault, and it wasn't. It was made up. And you know what? We're, we're going to come back real quick. Let's take a quick break, and then we'll talk about this case when we come back. Okay, Lindsay? Okay, sounds good. Thanks. All right. Thanks. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call one 800 350 C-A-L-I. For a national association, Francie's Choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. My guest today, Lindsay Lanehart Craig, is discussing not only trial consulting, but mitigation. It's all kinds of cases that mitigation applies to. 
we were just going to talk about Alfred, um, the presumed name of Alfred, who was charged with aggravated sexual assault, Lindsay. Let's talk about that case because it's really interesting. Yeah, definitely. Um, Alfred, um, and, and I'd like to say I like most of my clients, but some of them I like more than others. <laughs> and okay, this guy, sure. I just, I just felt for. You know, I completely believe them, and I don't always believe everything everybody tells me. I'm not that naive. I'm a little naive, but anyway. So Alfred was a really good guy, and he was um, kind of an important person in the neighborhood. He lived in kind of a bad neighborhood, um, lots of single-parent families, um, and he was uh, the neighborhood hairdresser. So all of the mostly boys uh, would come over to his house, and he'd give them haircuts, and, you know, they just hung out over there. He was also a DJ, so he was a really cool dude. Um, uh-huh. And the moms of these boys had no problem um, with them hanging out with Alfred. He was just the, kind of the guy to be around. And But Alfred was not um, a pushover. He was also a disciplinarian. I mean, he made sure that the boys did right and they were respectful and he had the mom's permission to discipline their kids. So he had their right. trust. And um, two boys in particular, so he started dating um, the mom of one of the boys that would, you know, come over frequently. So he kind of became like a stepdad to this this kid. And then there was another boy who he was best friends with the boy's mom. So they were over there all the time. I mean, they even had sleepovers at his house along with several other of the boys in the neighborhood. Um, so also he helped some of these boys get into college. He helped get them jobs. Um, he was just a good guy. So these two boys went on a school field trip out of town, and they got in trouble on the field trip. I don't know what it was for. Uh, I can't remember. But anyway, so they um, had to call their moms and tell them that they got in trouble. And both of their moms said, well, Alfred's going to be waiting on you when you get home. So they came up with this outcry. And when they got home, they told their moms that Alfred had been, you know, sexually assaulting them. I don't know what their words were exactly. But so the moms took the boys over to Alfred's house and said, what's going on? Our sons just told us this. And Alfred went, what? What? This is crazy. What are you talking about? And he he vehemently denied these accusations. And then it was nothing happened. Like a life went on. Um he still went out with that mom for a little bit. They still hung out. Um, he was still best friends with the other mom. And then uh, one of the kids got in trouble again at school, and the cops were called. Uh-huh. And that's when the outcry happened to the cops. So it was, you know, weeks later that the cops were even brought into this. Uh-huh. So... Um, 
Alfred went to jail on this accusation, and it was only on one of the kids, and it was the, the boy that he was dating the mom. So he's okay. sitting in jail, and, and um, nothing's really happening on his case, so his attorney uh, gets me appointed to his case, and I go in and talk to him and, and find out, you know, all this information, and he gives me a list of, I don't know, like 20 boys to call. You know, they're all okay. adults. They're all adults now. And so I talked to, I don't know, 15 of them, 10 to 15 of them, and they all told me the same thing, like, Alfred would never do something like this. He's never made me feel, feel uncomfortable. We've spent the night several times. I know these boys that are accusing him. They are lying. Um, and then I spoke with the mom, who was the best friend, and she gave me about 10 reasons why her son was making it up. And we, the attorney, presented the information to the DA, and the DA dismissed his case, and he sat in jail for about a year, um, and then was released. It makes me so sad that he had to spend a, a year in jail on these false accusations, and there's nothing and, we can do about it. There's no recourse. And why did, why didn't the mom believe her son? What were some of the reasons? Let me pull, can I pull it up real quick? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, um, let's see, here we go. Okay. Okay. So she says that there was always a lot of people over at Alfred's house, so it was not, he was never alone, basically, with Alfred. Um, Uh and, um, She'd never heard anything like that before. So, like, he'd never done anything like that before. Why now? Um, also, that Alfred loved women. <laughs> he was kind of a ladies' man. Um, and then um, she said that, the, oh, the whole thing about um, that the kids had been talking on the way home and they knew they were going to be in trouble when they got home, Uh so they made something up. That's what she believed. And she also believed Alfred's reaction whenever they went over and talked to him about it. Uh She felt like he was honest and that that hurt him, that these boys had done or had made up these accusations when he'd done so much for them. And then there were some other things that, you know, she was kind of reluctant to say, but some things that she um, had seen her son do, Um, you know, maybe um, homosexual things. Uh And I don't want to go into detail about them because it's kind of personal. But um, some things like that where she thought, you know, maybe he was trying to mask his own tendencies. And, and blame it on Alfred. Uh-huh. And then, okay. and also that, that um, her son continued ha- to have a relationship with Alfred after that. Did you know, someone done this go- to you, why? Did, did anyone ever go back and talk to the friend who had made, who's made the accusation as well 
find out what he was going to say? I did not. I didn't talk to uh, the the alleged victim's parents. Yeah. Uh, I didn't want to go there. Yeah. Okay. And you, you don't, don't want to make people mad. Had. You know. And, and you don't know. <laughs> you don't know whether the attorney had an investigator that went and talked to him. I don't believe so. No. And yeah. it, it okay. proved not necessary. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Well, on the other hand, you can see. Um, in kind of the profile of this, how law enforcement would look at this and say these are all the components that also make up a pedophile. You know, he's popular, he, he goes out of their way for kids, he supports them. All of those things are the same kinds of things that a pedophile does as well. Yeah, but it also so, um, kind of was clear to me that they didn't investigate it. You know, they just said, oh, well, these boys claim this, so... Was, was Alfred was Alfred known to the police at all? Do you no, know that? I think he did have he did have a little bit of a background, and but I think it it was um, a long time ago in his past, and it wasn't anything like this. Hang on, I'm looking him up right now. Um, and um, hang on, I'll tell you. Uh, we'll tell you. Sorry. Um, yeah, he did have some, oh, he did have some, some background. Oh, yes. Um, yeah, he had, he actually had an injury to a child. Um, yeah. I guess it was a conviction. Let me look. Yeah, he had a, it was a deferred, he got deferred a deferred. Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, on that, and I think it had to do with um, his own child. Uh, oh, I see. Yeah, I don't. I don't okay. think it was. Um, I don't know. I, I can't remember. I think it was. Well, it was the same kind of. Situation. No, 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 no. Okay. Mm-mm. So, but yeah, you got to look so at those backgrounds. Of... Those will get you. Right. Right. Yeah. For sure. Okay. So. So mitigation really applies to all kinds of cases. Um, right. It doesn't really, I mean, you, you mentioned family law and you mentioned um, specifically a, a child custody case and mm-hmm. a capital case. And in this case, it was, it was a, a sexual assault. So it can apply to just about any kind of case where there's uh, aggravating factors, but on the other side, there could be mitigating factors. Right. Yeah, I think, you know, um, mostly in the legal field, you hear about mitigation uh, with capital cases. And absolutely, it's important. It's necessary in capital cases when you're trying to save someone's life. Um, mm-hmm. But mitigation is also extremely important in non-capital cases. Uh, you know, when someone's, looking at going to prison for years, um, you still want right. to mitigate that punishment. I mean, it's, it's definitely important. Um, I don't, and I don't work on misdemeanors, but you can still do mitigation, you know, in misdemeanor cases. It's not going to be a full-blown workup, but you can have your clients pull their own information, you know, if it's necessary. You know, have them 
give you their resume and have them pull their own medical records. You can get them to uh, get people to write character reference letters for them. Um, so I, I believe, my belief is that mitigation is very important because crime doesn't yeah, exist sure. in a vacuum. There's always more to the story, more to know. So have you ever had a situation, Lindsay, where you were hired as a trial consultant? I, let's talk about the trial consultant consultancy mm-hmm. a little bit because um, tell us what you do with, with that. When you're contacted to be a consultant for a trial, how does that work? Yeah, well, I, um, I also like to help attorneys prepare for trial. So um, I like to put things in order <laughs> and organize. Okay. Um, I will organize trial binders and, you know, make sure that they have um, their profile of the witnesses that they might be questioning. Mm-hmm. And then um, I like to also do the um, electronics, so the AV equipment, if we're going to be showing photos or videos, um, getting that prepared and then actually running the um, the audiovisual stuff during trial. Um, also helping pick juries. You know, there's a lot of uh, science that goes along behind that. I don't know if you've ever seen the... TV show Bull, but I'm like I haven't. I would love to be like Bull on a on a very um, with not much money. <laughs> He's got all these like okay. fancy <laughs> all this fancy equipment for you know to decide which jurors are best for him. It's it is kind of a lot of Bull, but I I um, have never seen yeah, that show. <laughs> well, you, you you know we watched a few episodes and then we gave up on it, but. <laughs> Okay, but it but it's, so, it's it's an interesting process of of how to pick a jury, you know, for your case. Mm-hmm. And so, have you ever had a situation? That was back to what I started to ask originally. Have you ever had a situation where you were hired as a trial consultant and you said, "Oh wow, this case needs uh, mitigation work done." Oh sure, yeah. Some people, yeah. Um, you know, how oh, I can't remember which case it was. In fact, I think it was that family law case. And I said, well, why not, you know, let's just, let's do a, a mitigation workup on her. Why not? What what could we lose, you know, by doing this? Um, mm-hmm. And then I also went to trial with him. Uh, you know, it was a week-long trial in a little bitty city or town, I should call it, here in Texas. Uh-huh. But, um, yeah, and then... You know, I've only done just jury selection uh, on, I don't know, a handful of cases. And I prefer mitigation. Yeah. That's my so favorite. When you do it's the, more, more interesting. So, which brings to mind when you did the mitigation on that uh, family case where the guy mm-hmm. died, did you also uh, explore the wife as well besides your client? Yeah, so, yes, um, I call it reverse mitigation, which is a little bit more like investigation, and I don't have my investigator's license, so I don't, I try not to do, you know, like what you do (laughs) without Uh a license, but yeah, I think, yeah, sometimes it's important to look into the background of the people that are actually accusing, like that case of Alfred. 
I looked into the kids that were, you know, accusing him of this. Um, Talk mm-hmm. to Mama. But, yeah, on the family law one, yes, the client gave me tons of information uh, on Mama and ex-wife or soon-to-be ex-wife, and uh, I did a little bit of research into her as well. So so you brought up something, uh, Lindsay, about licensing. So there is a lot of controversy about whether, at least in California, I don't know about uh, Texas, but a lot of controversy about whether a mitigation specialist should be a licensed private investigator. What do you think about Mm -hmm. that? Absolutely. I wish there was a license, and there's, you don't have to have anything to be a mitigation specialist. Um, but yeah, I, I think, I hope that that's the way it's going, because I think it would be, I think it would be very helpful um, to have that um, knowledge, you know, to, to actually have a license and some training and a, um, and a, um, like a uh, association, you know, to where right. you can you can help each other. Okay, I'm I'm thinking more. The controversy is surrounding that uh, a lot of people think that a mitigation specialist should have a private investigator's license. Um, I don't know. You know, lots of people tell me. I should get my license as an investigator. I think you should, too. <laughs> I think you should, too. <laughs> but, you know, it's not necessary, and I, don't, and I don't necessarily want to be a fact investigator. I really don't. I really enjoy doing what I do, but okay, why would you think, it might why would be you helpful think you had to... to Huh? And why would you think you had to be a fact investigator if you had a private investigator's license? That doesn't, one doesn't have anything to do with the other, actually. You don't have to be a fact well, investigator to be a PI. Well, you can, you can I do guess you're right. <laughs> you're going to talk, yeah. talk me into it, aren't you? I'm <laughs> seriously, I, the reason, I, the reason there's controversy about it, frankly, is because and, and granted, you have uh, a master's in counseling, which probably covers it um, technically, but that's where it comes in. The rubber meets the road when you talk to start interviewing people is where you most licensing acts uh, mm-hmm. define themselves. So if you're, like, for instance, background screeners, if you're just doing background and you're pulling records and that's all you're doing and you're not actually interviewing people, then you don't have to have mm-hmm. a license in some states like California doesn't. But if you're actually interviewing people regarding that, that in, former employee, then that requires a license. And, and that's the way it's, mitigation actually is looked at. Although I realize that uh, technically, in the scheme of things, mitigation specialists don't need to be licensed. But there, mm-hmm. there is... Uh, a, a little resentment in that private investigator world that they can do interviews gotcha. without being licensed. Yeah. I gotcha. Yeah, yeah but, but yeah, um, I don't know. Maybe. Maybe one of these days I'll, I'll, I'll just do it. I'll just get my license or, or you know, the knowledge. I, I'm, I'm definitely not opposed to learning more about techniques 
when it comes to talking to people and, and more uh, of what to do or what I can do to help someone. Yeah, and you know, the, the Texas Association of Licensed Investigators, Tally, they're a great association with a lot of resources. You'd have a lot of networking opportunities there. And I might mention that you might be interested. Have you ever heard of the Capital Case Conference in California? No, it's actually I haven't. this weekend. Yeah, it's this weekend, and it brings oh, in okay. um, people from all over the country, attorneys, litigation specialists, psychologists, investigators from all over the country, and they have a four-day uh, starts at noon, uh, noon tomorrow and goes to noon on Monday of uh, about 12, 12 tracks, 10 tracks every hour and a half or two hours or so. It's really, really good. I highly uh, recommend you check into it because that would be a great, uh, forum for you to not only learn but to uh, make contacts. Yeah, great. So, Would you? Can you email me that? <laughs> I'm sorry. What? I said, can you email me that? <laughs> I, I will. I will email you that. It's uh, thank you. It's to the California Public Defenders Association and the California Attorneys for Criminal Justice. And they have it every year on President's Weekend. So, great, uh, and I would great. love to come to California. Well, there you go. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, you know, we're almost at the end of our time, Lindsay. Um, it's been great talking to you, and I, I really uh, I respect your work. Uh, I respect well, that so uh, people people that do mitigation is not an easy process. I I know from personal experience. And particularly if it's uh, a case that's already been adjudicated and the person's in prison and now you're trying to, uh, one of your cases, I believe, was exactly that where the attorney was ineffective and you were trying to uh, figure out what to do with that case. And, and it's really important work because there's a lot of people in prison today that have been wrongfully convicted. And we yep. know that just because of the Innocence Project efforts and all the DNA uh, exonerations and all that. So we know that exists, so, uh, and, but it's, it's a difficult road when you're trying to do mitigation, and I really respect that it's, um, those are hard interviews. Thank you, yes, you and, and I have to, difficult. before we, before we uh, hang up, I have to give a shout out to Pursuit Magazine, which is how Absolutely. you found me. Um, and I was honored uh, by them to get to write about what I do, and so I want to thank them very much. Good people. Yes, thank you to Pursuit Pursuit Magazine. Um, We've had other folks from Pursuit in the past, and, of course, we have to thank my sponsor, PI Magazine, uh, and Jimmy Messis and Roe Messis as my sponsors. Lindsay, thanks for being on the show uh, and educating all of us. So this little-known practice, this little-known trial practice. Yes, thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Absolutely. And for the rest of you, uh, tune in again next week as PIC Classified brings you topics of interest to legal professionals at PIC Classified. I'm Francie Taylor. Thanks so much for listening. You've been listening to PIC Classified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.S. Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel.